Yeah, my name is Jacob. Um, for the second week in a row, I get the opportunity and the joy to, to bring the Word of God tonight. And um, this week, we're, we're continuing in, in our sermon through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, as we talked about last week, this is a sermon that Jesus gave his, his disciples um, on a mountain. And tonight, we're going to read the verses that were just read. Um, I'm not going to read them again right now, but we're going to be preaching through them. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. So if you've got your Bibles, you guys can turn there. And last week we saw how, how Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And, and we saw that, that everything that the Old Testament writers wrote about, everything they pointed to was actually pointing to Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament wrote about. And, and a part of one of the ways that we did that was we were in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and we saw six ways that there are six commands that God gave um, about how he cares for the vulnerable. And then we learned about how Jesus came and, and rescued vulnerable sinners that were headed to hell, you and I. And tonight we're going to look at another six commandments and teachings, but this time these commandments were given by Jesus himself. And these six commandments are what we already read in Matthew chapter 5. And in each of these, these commandments, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's, he's showing them what it looks like to live out the righteousness that Jesus has already placed in us. So the title of this sermon is Six Ways to Live Out the Righteousness that Jesus Has Placed in Us. And before we get into the commands from Jesus tonight, um, I want to I just make sure that we understand the context of, of what Jesus is is teaching us. So last week in verses 17 through 20, um, right before the, what we read tonight, we saw the big idea that because Jesus fulfilled the law, we can now follow the law. And so what we're looking at tonight are really six practical ways to do just that, six practical ways to follow the law. But I want to be clear that, that as we look at all of these things, you know, God's going to call us to obey. He wants us to obey his laws. But the reality is that our obedience to the commandments of Jesus does not justify us before God. We can obey all of these rules and still miss the heart of God. And so the reason that we, that we see these is, yes, to grow in our relationship with the Lord, but we need to understand that our obedience to these is not what makes us right with God. See, the Bible teaches that we have clearly all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And as a result, we're separated from God. And the only way that we can get back into a right relationship with God is because of Jesus. That's the whole reason that Jesus had to come. Because we are separated from God because of our sin, Jesus had to come to make us right with God. And so because of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, now all who trust in Jesus have the promise of eternal life with God. See, our works, whether good or bad, they have no power to make us right with God, but Jesus' work is what gives us life. So now, if we place our faith in Jesus, we have the righteousness of God as a gift. And that means when Jesus is, is living in us, God looks at us and he sees us hidden in Christ. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And out of that reality, now we get to obey him. Now we get to represent him well on the earth. So not only are we welcomed into the family of God, but we're given a, a, a job to do. We're told to represent Jesus here on the earth. We're his ambassadors. We're, we're representatives of the kingdom of God. And so as that is our reality, we have the responsibility to now live differently than the rest of the world lives. See, we've been forgiven of our sins, but now we've also been given a new power 
in the Holy Spirit that lives in us so that we don't have to be a slave to our sin anymore. We don't have to do what our sinful nature wants to do anymore. See, before Christ, we had to do what our sin nature wanted to do. We were powerless over sin. But now, because Jesus lives in us, we have power over sin. We no longer have to submit to its demands. And that's good news for us. So we have the ability to follow the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. And tonight, we're going to go quickly because there are six commands. We're going to go quickly through all six of them. Um, and I want to show you, as we, as we go through them, I want to show you how Jesus himself fulfilled each of them. So he doesn't just call us to, to obey him, but he also went ahead of us, and he fulfilled every single one of these commands that he's going to give us as well. And it's my prayer that as we hear the teachings of Jesus, that we're moved to action that we leave this place aware of the dangers of sin, but also motivated to obey Jesus and thankful that Jesus has already obeyed perfectly and that he's given us that righteousness before God. Sound good? So we're going to get into it. Let's look at Matthew 21, or Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. They say this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So our first way to to live out the righteousness that Jesus has placed in us, that we get from this text, is to deal with anger quickly. To deal with anger quickly. In each of these commands, Jesus is going to get to the heart of the issue. He's going to get to the heart behind the command. And, And in this situation, the the religious leaders of the day were so proud of the fact that they kept the commandments of God, right? They kept all of his rules. In this case, they were proud of the fact that they weren't going around and murdering people, right? And Jesus says, yeah, that's a good thing. Like, not murdering people is very, very good, but how's your heart? See, Jesus gets past the surface, gets past the outside act, and goes straight to the heart. And what we see is that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, See, what we're going to see in all of these situations is that we have a heart that is deceitful and is wicked. But the good news is that Jesus has come to make it new. So Jesus, he agrees, yes, we should not murder. But now he takes it deeper and he warns against being angry with people in our hearts. And in English, obviously, we have kind of two different types of anger. We can say that that I'm angry about sin, right? And that's a very good thing to be angry about. We see Jesus displaying righteous anger time and time again. And so, so as we see um, people being taken advantage of, as we see families being broken because of sin, as we see sin in our own lives, yeah, we should be angry. Like, that's a good thing to be angry about, but that is not the anger that Jesus is talking about in this situation. Here, he's talking about an anger that is actually a hatred that's in our hearts towards other people. And he takes that hatred super seriously. He says, in fact, if we hold hatred in our hearts, Toward other people, we're liable to judgment and even to the fire of hell. Why is this such a big issue? Well, because each and every person on the planet, regardless of where they've come from or what they believe, is made in the image of God. 
Each and every person on this planet that is special to God, is loved by God, and is here for a reason. And so if God loves them, and if we now have been, have been given the opportunity to represent God, then we have a responsibility to love them too. So we recognize the issue that, that hatred toward other people is, is sinful, and that it's not a good representation of God's kingdom. So how do we respond? Well, we need to deal with anger quickly. And Jesus gives us two examples, two ways to do that. First, he talks about how to deal with anger between another Christian, brother or sister. And then he talks about how to deal um, with an accusation from someone who is accusing us. So in verses 23 and 24, we're told that basically if we're going to a church gathering and we're, and we're worshiping and we're giving and we're hearing the word of God, but we realize that we have wronged a Christian brother or sister, then it's better for us to leave the gathering to be reconciled to that brother and sister, and then to return. And I can tell you that this is something that's, that's difficult for us in our culture today. It's so easy for us to come to church and to feel good about the fact that we're, we're singing to God and that we're in Christian community and that we're, we're giving or we're learning from God's word, all the while having beef, having issues with our Christian brothers and sisters. And guys, the reality is that we are a family. God calls us his family. And as we know, every family is going to have a little bit of issues, right? So it's not, it's not surprising that, that there are times when, when we wrong people that are Christians, and there are times that we are wronged by people that are Christians. That's not uncommon. But Jesus tells us in this verse that we need to deal with those wrongs quickly. We need to deal with that bitterness quickly. Because there's a real danger if we don't choose to reconcile with our Christian brothers and sisters, because the world notices that. See, the world notices that, oh, those Christians, they can't get along. And if that's the reality, then we're not representing, representing the, the gospel of Jesus very well, right? Because the gospel says that Jesus came for all people and that he unites all people into a family, right? Under his blood. And so we represent the gospel well when we acknowledge our fault to our brother and sister and we are reconciled. About three years ago, I remember um, there was a guy that was a friend of mine, and we realized that me and him were both talking to the same girl. And we didn't know it, like, at the time, but, but then eventually we did know it. And so, um, as you would expect, there was a little bit of awkwardness between us, right? But we were both like, okay, we're Christian brothers and sisters, and this is weird, but we need to figure this out. We got we to gotta reconcile, right? So we're like, what do we both like to do? Well, let's go play, ulti- or let's go play um, frisbee golf. And so it was a fall day, and we start playing Frisbee golf, and it was super awkward at the beginning. We were just talking about whatever. And then finally, we had to address the, the elephant in the room, per se, the elephant that was following us on the golf course. And, um, you know, talked about, like, hey, we're both talking to the same girl. This isn't right. We should probably work on this and confess this to each other and probably stop, right? And, um, and we did, and praise God, we left that conversation getting along, reconciled. And now she's with another guy, and that's neither of us, so it all worked out well. And um, God's faithful. But guys, we have the responsibility to reconcile with our brother quickly. And it may be awkward, it may be uncomfortable, and it's always going to take a lot of humility, but it's worth it. It represents God well. The same urgency is seen in regards to someone who accuses us. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser in order to avoid going to court. 
And so this instruction stands, whether it has to do with a, a Christian brother or sister or someone who's just accusing us, that we need to deal quickly with these issues in order to prevent anger and hatred and bitterness from taking root in our hearts. And Jesus, guys, Jesus modeled this so well when he was on earth. See, he was wronged time and time and time again. He was falsely accused. He was given a fake trial. And then he was sentenced unjustly to death on the cross. Yet instead of of saying, I'm going to get back at you guys, you people who falsely accused me, Jesus died for those very people. See, instead of holding anger and wrath in his heart toward those who wronged him, Jesus gave his life for them so that they could spend eternity with him. Jesus reconciled our broken relationship with God on that cross, and that is the righteousness that Jesus has given us. So now we can reconcile with our brothers and sisters. Let's move on to the next section, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So our second way to live out the righteousness that Jesus has placed in us is to deal with lust urgently. To deal with lust urgently. So like Jesus did in in the previous section, he, he goes straight for the heart and he says, yes, not committing adultery is good. Not committing the act of adultery is good, but, but how's your heart? Because if you're looking at a woman with lustful intent, he says you're already committing adultery with her in your heart. And I want to take a little bit more time on, on this section than on the rest because I believe that it's incredibly important for us as, as people in, in this generation to understand God's heart for sex. Because God's heart for sex is completely different from that that the world teaches. The thing that we need to understand is that, that sex is a gift from God. You guys realize that before sin entered the world, God had already called Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, meaning this, that sex came before sin. And if that's the case, then sex is not sin. Not anywhere close to it. But the question then is, is why do we have such a twisted view of sex in our world? And it's because the enemy has taken it. He's taken something that has been a really good gift from God, and he's made it something that we serve as a God in our society. He's taken the gift from God, and he's made it a God in our society. Sex is used every day to, to sell products from, from cars to clothing. It's used to, to bring people into movie theaters to get likes on social media. And for some, it's even their, their very sense of identity. Some people believe that the sex is just a, a physical act that two people do with each other whenever they want, with whoever they want, if they both want to do it. And, and that's what our culture preaches. And in a lot of cases, that's what our culture celebrates. But sex is powerful, and the enemy knows it. And so for that reason, he's taken it outside of its God-given context in a, in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, and he's thrown it around, he's cheapened its value, and he's destroying lives in the process. And we know that this is, is real. Like at any moment, we can get online and we can look up things and images that, that fulfill our sexual lusts. So the world is taking this good gift from God, and again, it's making it a God, and so many in our culture are worshiping it. 
see the sad reality is that that pornography is a cool as a tool that the enemy is using in our day and age to destroy marriages to destroy families and to destroy relationships all because we're choosing to serve our lustful flesh over obeying god and so just as it's important to understand how serious this this reality is it's it's important to see the the evil that is pornography and sexual sin but it's also important for us to to understand god's design for sex because after all god is the one who designed it so god's design for sex he designed it as a way to, to unify a husband and a wife it's more than just making babies jesus says the two will become one flesh so it's designed for a committed marital relationship and in that context it's beautiful enjoyable and it's a powerful picture of the covenant of the promise that a husband has made to a wife and a wife to a husband to love and to serve and to sacrifice for one another just as a fire is beautiful in a fireplace so is sex within the context of marriage and so so god gave us this this as a gift meaning this having a sex drive is not a sin it's actually a gift from god the problem comes when we let sex drive i stole that from someone i'm gonna say it again having a sex drive is not sin the problem comes when we let sex drive meaning that that if we are in a place where we are controlled by our sexual desires and we yield to them time and time again that's where the issue comes so if you're in a place tonight where you're like i have been letting sex drive i am a slave to my sexual desires then jesus has super clear instructions for us as his people he says that it's better to lose one of the members of our body than for our whole body to go into hell it's better to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand than to lose your soul and obviously jesus here is using hyperbole he's not actually telling us to cut off our hands because there would be a lot of people without hands and without eyes that's not what he's saying but he's using the hyperbole to be incredibly clear to get his point across that we must deal with lust urgently and we must do it seriously and the application here is super simple that if there are things that that we're looking at that are causing us to sin we need to stop looking at them if there's things that we're doing that are causing us to sin we need to stop doing them for me i've experienced years of victory in this area praise the lord but i also am taking still very real precautions because i know that in a weak moment i can fall and so on my phone i've got i've got an app that tracks everything i do and at the end of each week i have a friend who receives all the information and they have all the freedom to to talk to me about whatever they see and maybe that 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 sounds a little bit extreme but when i read this i see that jesus teaching on this is incredibly extreme and it calls for extreme measures and the reality is i would rather not have safari on my phone than destroy my ministry family and soul for the sake of a few moments of sexual pleasure i want to close this section though by by addressing uh, maybe those of you who who feel like that you've kind of blown it in in this area and you may be feeling shameful or dirty right now i want to clearly tell you this that shame is not from god that shame is not from god in fact jesus died so that he could free you of that shame jesus died so that your shame could die too understand this where we have chosen to use pornography and we have used people for our own lustful pleasure jesus sacrificially gave his life for us so that now we can experience the eternal pleasure of god 
See, Jesus died for you, and he wants nothing more than your broken heart, than your dirty past, than your shame and your fear. He wants you to give all of those things to him, and he says that he's going to, in return, give you his perfection. He's going to clothe you in his righteousness. He's going to take the shame and give honor. And it's scandalous, and it doesn't make sense, but that is the truth of the gospel, that we give Jesus all our crap, and he gives us all his glory. Friends, we must understand that if we will turn to Jesus, he will take the dirty pieces of our story and he will redeem them and he will replace them with his perfect righteousness. Though your sins are like scarlet, Jesus promises to make them white as snow. So Jesus gave his life so that we can experience the eternal pleasure of God. And City Light you, if we know that the eternal pleasure of God is available to us, then how foolish would we be to exchange it for a few moments of worldly, lustful pleasure. So as Christians, let's be people who deal with lust urgently. Let's move on to verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the third way we can live out the righteousness that Jesus has placed in us is to love your spouse sacrificially. Love your spouse sacrificially. And I know for the majority of us, we're not um, married in this place, but, but we can start putting into practice this, this command right now. See, this, this teaching from Jesus, it speaks directly into a practice of that day where, where men would divorce women for the most petty of reasons. Essentially, if a man said, I want to move on, he would just say, I'm going to divorce my wife and I'm going to move on. And Jesus says, no, no. But why is he so against that? Well, because marriage is designed to be a picture of God's relationship with us. And that relationship, God's relationship with us, is a relationship that can never be broken. So when marriages are broken, they're not well, they're not doing well to represent God's relationship with us. So Jesus addresses these men that are, that are divorcing their wives for, um, for various reasons, and he goes straight to the heart. And the heart issue for these men is that they were using their wives instead of loving their wives. Using their wives instead of loving their wives. So they would keep them around until they stopped seeing them as a value, and then they would, would send them out and divorce them. And a divorced woman in that day, especially if she didn't have a certificate of divorce like Jesus talks about, would have been completely outcasted, completely alone, poor, and helpless. So the heart of this command is simple. It's to love your spouse sacrificially. You're in a covenant with them, a covenant representing God's covenant with us. And that relationship involves sacrifice. And we can put this into practice now. We can, we can practice being the type of people that we want to be when we're married. See, we can, we can practice this by, by living a life that is, is sacrificially serving and protecting and providing for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that way, we can practice being godly spouses now. And guys, again, we can do all of this. Why? Because Jesus went ahead of us. See, instead of, of using us for, for what God could get out of us, Jesus loved us as sacrificially as he possibly could. He loved us to the point of death on the cross. And now, the Bible says that we are called, as Christians, the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. We're in a relationship with him that will never be broken, 
And we're awaiting the day when we're going to sit together at this event that the Bible calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're together with Jesus in perfection. We're going to be experiencing the full benefit of our, our marriage relationship with God in eternity and in all of its glory. So because Jesus has sacrificially loved us as his bride, we can sacrificially love our spouses. Look with me now, verses 33 through 37. Jesus continues. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So the fourth way to live out the righteousness Jesus has placed in us is to be a person of your word. Be a person of your word. Again, Jesus is talking and then speaking into a, a, a teaching that the religious leaders would, would give that day that they said, basically, if you, if you make an oath and if you swear by God, then you have to do what that oath says. But... If you make an oath and you don't say God, then you can back out of that oath. And again, Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that the people were not being people of their word. So instead of being trustworthy and, and filled with integrity, they were flaky and they were simply looking for a way out of their commitment. So Jesus says, just be a person of your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're not going to do something, don't do it. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. And the reality is, again, that we represent Jesus well when we're people of our word, because Jesus is a person of his word. See, we know that, that all of the promises of God are yes and are amen in Christ. And we know that when God makes a promise, he fulfills that promise every single time. He follows through every time on his promises. And because of that, we represent God best when we're people of of our word, when we're faithful to do what we say we're going to do. Let's continue. Verses 38 through 42. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So our fifth way to live out the righteousness Jesus has placed in us is to let God take care of the justice. Let God take care of the justice. Here, Jesus is talking about retaliation. And at the heart of this command, he's teaching that, that we should not be the ones fighting back and getting our own vengeance. Instead, we, we can be people who are personally wronged, at times even taken advantage of, and yet we can trust that God will be the one to provide the justice. God will take care of the justice every time. The Apostle Paul, he, he teaches the same thing in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We can trust God to vindicate us. We can trust God that vengeance is his and that he will repay. And yet again, we see Jesus showing us this 
perfectly. He, he had every single right to retaliate when he was treated terribly. Time and time again, he was treated terribly, he was falsely accused, and ultimately he was sent to the cross. Yet instead of retaliating, instead of taking vengeance, Jesus laid down his life and he trusted the justice to God. And in that incredible situation, we gained eternal life as a result. See, God poured out his justice on Jesus and he gave us the free gift of eternal life. God deals with justice and he does it so well. Finally, I want to go to verses 43 through 47. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the, his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So our sixth and final way to live out the righteousness Jesus has placed in us from this text is to seek the good of your enemy. Seek the good of your enemy. Here Jesus is, is, is addressing another false view that the people held that, that they knew the law that said you must love your neighbor. And that they were starting to justify, well, who is my neighbor? And they would say, my neighbor is the person that, that looks like me. Maybe they're from the same place I'm from. They're the person that, that holds the same religious belief I have. But again, Jesus gets to the heart and says, instead of trying to justify who your neighbor is and only loving the people that you call your neighbor, we're to love everyone, even those who are our enemies. And this love is a love that sets us apart from the world. Because the world teaches love the people that love you and hate the people that don't. But Jesus teaches love everyone, even our enemies. And how do we do this? Well, we seek their good. We seek the good of the people who are enemies. And one way that, that I think is incredibly helpful for us to do this is by simply praying for them. I mean, think about it. It's pretty hard to hate someone when you're praying that God would bless them, would reveal himself to them, and would save them, right? We can pray for our enemies, and that, in a way, is a, is a way to seek the good of our enemies. And we see Jesus doing this same thing. See, not only did Jesus die for us while we were his enemies, he also prayed for those who crucify him. In Luke's account of the crucifixion, we see Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus sought the good of his enemies. He sought the good of you and me, and we have salvation as a result. Jesus closes this section in, in verse 48. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if we're believers in Jesus, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, we have a perfect Father in heaven. And we've seen over the last few weeks that, that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled every command of God. And now he invites us into that life. He invites us into the life that he's given us. See, the reason that God gives us all of these commands, all of these instructions is because he knows how life works best because he's the one who designed it. He knows the decisions that are going to bring us life, and he knows the decisions that are going to bring us death. And so for that reason, it is so incredibly loving of God to give us his word and to give us these instructions because it brings us life. He knows that, that when we receive a new heart from God, and when we start to obey him and start to walk in his ways, it leads to the glory of God 
but it also leads to great joy for us. So City Light U, we can live out the righteousness that Jesus has placed in us. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we are clothed in the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus. And because he lives in us, we now have the ability to obey him from our hearts. We can submit to and obey Jesus' teachings. In doing so, we'll give God a lot of glory and it will bring us a lot of joy. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that, that you have loved us enough to instruct us. And God, there are times when, when we hear words that maybe are hard to receive, God, but I thank you that you share these words with us out of love. God, because you know that, that obeying you brings great life. You know that submitting to your ways brings great joy and it brings you great glory. So God, I pray that we would be, be people who, um, who take your correction as a sign that you love us, Lord, and that we would uh, represent you well on this earth. Father, continue to form us more and more into the image of Jesus. And thank you for clothing us in the righteousness of God. Thank you for giving us power over sin by your spirit. Pray that we would walk in that victory. In Jesus' name, amen.